On January 15th, 1919, a 25-foot wave sailed along at 30 miles an hour. It headed first down Commercial Street, then divided off into other streets in North Boston. A massive molasses storage tank burst. Witnesses describe an earthquake, a rumbling and then a roar, a cadence of machine gun sounds as the rivets popped and the tank burst. This dark tide of molasses turned the neighborhood into one goopy, sticky mess. Investigations took place after this eruption, and they concluded there were three reasons for the failure. First is something called thermal shock, where the temperature inside the tank grew too fast. The second was component failure. There was a crack in the access manhole to the tank, and that grew to a critical level. And the third is poor health monitoring. Some claim issues did appear on the tank, but the company simply painted it brown to cover them up. So you're wanting to know this morning, what does any of this have to do with the Bible? It's a fair question. Well, in many ways, this event is a metaphor for the church. You know, of all the groups on the planet, Jesus Christ made the church the standard bearer of the gospel and truth and love. The world should be able to look to the church and see the person of Jesus Christ. Yet, if the church does not cool her internal conflicts, if she doesn't unite rather than splinter on her core doctrines, and if she paints over her problems, ignoring them rather than resolving them, well, explosions happen and messes ensue. The very purpose for which the church exists then, we might say to bless and even to sweeten, well, she fails to function in her influence. Peter has an answer to this. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And we're going to continue this morning in our series from the epistle of 1 Peter. We'll begin in verse 8 and go through verse 12. It's chapter 3. Remember, Peter's been writing to aliens or pilgrims. He's writing to Christians who are now foreigners in this world because of their faith in Jesus. Peter's going to answer questions already about our new identity, and he'll answer questions about our new life. Well, this morning we're going to learn that a loving unity sustains our witness. In verses 8 and 9, Peter gives the instruction, and then in verses 8 through, excuse me, verses 10 through 12, he provides some support. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, 
must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As I mentioned, we're continuing in a series of verses in 1 Peter. And you notice that verse 8 begins with, finally. Now, my translation read to sum it up, but finally is really a better translation here. After all, these verses are going to conclude a section on Christian living. And Peter's writing this letter. He's moving along. He's now going to change gears. He's going to move into a different section of the letter in just a few verses. We've been learning about how we interact, different relationships. Beginning in verse 13, a new section is going to begin, and it'll answer the question of what happens when faithful living bumps up against persecution. So in many ways, this text today, our verses, it functions like a bridge or, or like a link between where Peter was and where Peter's going to go. Look at how this word finally is going to work to, to wrap up the passage and how, it, how it's going to work within the groups in our passage. Who does Peter write to in verse 8? He writes to all of you. Beginning back in chapter 2, verse 13, Peter's done this already. He's addressed the entire group of the church. There he speaks of their relationship to the government. And since then, he's addressed different groups in the church. We talked about servants, about wives, about husbands. And he now comes back to that group again. All of you, he says. Finally, and that makes what he writes today applicable to every Christian in the church. It makes it very relevant to the Christian community. In fact, by the time we get to our third virtue in verse 8, this one called brotherly love, that really underscores and highlights the fact. So how do we thrive then as a redeemed community living in this enemy territory? To borrow from our illustration, how do we avoid the molasses? Well, we find strength in a loving unity. Verses 8 and 9 teach us how. Verse 8 is a list. It's a list of inner attitudes or virtues. As we explain this list, as we look through that verse, we can't help but think about our Lord Jesus Christ. These words, these attributes, they describe him perfectly. Without fail, throughout his entire life, he exemplified verse 8 perfectly. And he does so still today. I should make mention to you, if you have not entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can do that here this morning by, by faith in him, by believing that you're a sinner and by believing that he died for your sin. If you believe that message, the Bible says, you will be saved. You would enter into a relationship with the most sympathetic and most loving and kind-hearted person you will ever know. In many ways, Jesus embodies verse 8. Notice as well in verse 8 that Peter has a certain approach with the church. He's not telling us here what to do in any and every situation, but rather he's giving us attributes. He's telling us how to be. That then translates into any situation. 
It's widely translatable. It's always applicable. In other words, these virtues will impact what we will do and how we will respond. A third observation, these virtues are relational. Verse 8 almost takes for granted that you have relationships within the body of Christ. And some of these are going to assume that these are relationships of some depth to, to do what Peter is calling us to. We should mention as well that these virtues are going to trump personality. You may worship here this morning as someone that's more introvert rather than extrovert. This whole talk about relationships, even the mention of it, it's quite unattractive. You'd rather crawl into a casket. I don't believe Peter's calling you and I to to change our personality, to all be of the same kind of personality. I do believe that when we come to faith, the Holy Spirit begins to rewire how we're wired so that we can obey God's commands, so that we can fulfill passages like verse 8. I mean, I don't see anything in God where he gives you verse 8 and says, good luck, go get them. That's not our Lord at all. Rather, regardless of your temperament, this passage is for you. Maybe we live out verse 8 in different ways depending upon our personality, but we can do it nonetheless by the grace of God. Well, all that to be said, we should begin to look at these, and you notice the first one heading off the list concerns unity. My version says, be harmonious, literally be of one mind. Moments before his arrest, this was the prayer of Jesus. In John 17, he prayed for his church, the disciples. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. That's a profound prayer. Jesus, if you caught it, is asking for the unity of the Trinity to exist among his people. And you also heard the purpose for it, if you caught it as well. The reason for this, it's it's a testimony, it's a witness to the world. He's going to then issue this same kind of unity, the same kind of call through his apostles to his churches. And Paul's a great example of this. He writes to Rome, be of the same mind toward one another. He writes to Corinth, I exhort you that you all agree and there be no divisions among you. He writes to Ephesus, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. In fact, in his work on the one another's of the New Testament, these commands for God's people amongst themselves, Jeffrey Kranz estimates that about a third of the one another's deal in some way with unity. So to do what we need to do, to be what we're supposed to be, we need unity. So what's Peter saying then? We are all to be a clone of one another? No, that's not what he's saying. In fact, this is probably a good time to discuss what unity is and what unity is not. Unity is not something to be fabricated. In other words, we aren't to pursue unity just so we can say, hey, we're united. No, instead, unity is to be real and and genuine. 
The unity ought to have some kind of depth to it. Unity is not an end in itself. Rather, it's a reflection of what's going on among the people of God. Unity is neither uniformity, where everyone and everything is exactly alike. In fact, God's Spirit gives a diversity of gifts to a diversity of people in the New Testament. That means that unity includes diversity, that we are working together and we are fellowshipping, even though we're not all uniform or exactly alike. It's worth mentioning that unity is not absent of truth. It's not a perfect agreement on every theological point. But unity does include truth. In Ephesians 4.13, Paul writes that we should seek unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. In that passage, ironically as well, it, it teaches that unity is achieved through a diversity of gifts when they're exercised. St. Augustine's words work very well here when he said, on essentials, unity, on non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. So we unify on the essentials, on doctrinal essentials, the person of Jesus Christ, justification by faith, the gospel, the authority of Scripture. We unify on our mission, like the Great Commission, for example, We all agree what we should do, though we might go about doing it differently. And I would add at this point that I believe one's capacity for a biblical-defined unity, I think that can be a helpful marker of our growth and our spiritual maturity. I think to some extent we can track our growth in the Lord by considering our reactions and our attitudes that arise from disagreement. For example, what do you do when people disagree with you? What do you do when you disagree with other people? Do you challenge them to a duel? That would be an extreme. Hopefully that isn't happening. But on the other end, are you exhibiting the attitudes of verse 8? That would be a healthy response and probably an indicator that there's growth going on. You see, Peter calls us to be unified. And unity is how we thrive, not merely survive, but thrive in this fractured world. Secondly, we are to be sympathetic. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 speaks about the sympathy of our Lord. The author writing, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's a powerful statement. Jesus understands our weaknesses, and he gave himself to that experience. And to be sympathetic is to care, and to care what's going on in the life of someone else, to care to experience what they're experiencing alongside them. Paul writes, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. This isn't something that can be forced There's really no box to check for this. This opportunity to to represent Christ, to be sympathetic, this is going to arise on its own, and I guess most naturally out of those cultivated relationships we enjoy. 
But sympathy is really a display of love at the core. That takes us to our third attribute, this third virtue. Peter calls us to, to brotherly love. We encounter this particular kind of love back in chapter 1, back in verse 22. It's important to note that the Greek language has four different words for love. This is the brotherly love, pronounced phileo. It's not the romantic love. That's a different word. It's not a family love. That's a different word. It's not a sacrificial love. That's a different word. That's the popular love of the New Testament, agape love. But this love is for fellow Christians, specifically, for brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. For sons and daughters of God the Father. This is the love that Peter writes of. This love that we are called to is not confined simply to emotions or to feelings. It may be at times that we don't necessarily feel love for another Christian. But this is something that we are called to choose anyway. This is a love that our fellow believers could testify to. It's something that they're experiencing. Paul writes of this love in 1 Thessalonians. He says, you practice it toward the brethren. When the author of Hebrews writes about this love, what does he say right after it? Do not neglect to show hospitality. You can hear that's a love that shows action. Let's say in the Bible and the New Testament, a love for people is important. A love for fellow believers is very important. Fourthly, we're to strive to be kind-hearted. Some of your Bible versions read tender-hearted or compassionate. The origin of this word is a bit unusual. We've encountered this before. It's really based off of a word for bowels or for inward parts. The thinking back in the day was that this is the seat of the emotions. Today we use the word heart instead, or or soul. Peter gives us a reminder here to be compassionate. This is very applicable for the day in which you and I live. The world around us desensitizes. If you watch news, or film, or whatever show you enjoy streaming, we are fed a constant spectacle of suffering. And over time, that desensitizes us. What do we see on the news? It's another homeless camp, another drug overdose, another migrant. Not only can we forget how to hurt for others, but we can even grow bitter. And we can forget that all of those news clips, they're of people made in the image of God, whose lives are sadly distilled down to some 30-second update. What did Jesus do? when he encountered people like this. To the homeless, he cast out a demon named Legion. To the intoxicated, he had dinner with them. To the outsider, those who were not his people, he put his fingers in the man's ears and spit and touched his tongue. It'd be one thing to say that Jesus was compassionate, but more accurate to say that he felt compassion. What about you? Do, you? do you pity those suffering in the world around us? Those who are lost and clearly in sin. Those who sin. 
not only here in the world around us, but more to Peter's point in the context, to, to brothers and sisters in the Lord. Are we tenderhearted toward one another? Well, fifthly, Peter calls us to be humble in spirit. John Stott has written that humility is the result of knowing God and knowing yourself. In other words, once you grasp the greatness and the beauty and the majesty of of God, and then once you understand a biblical framework of who you are, you're going to find humility. And if these things get sideways, if if life becomes more self-focused, if we forget God's design for all of this that we're doing here, look back at verse 8. If we forget those things, when it comes to compassion and sympathy, we're we're not going to have time for others. When it comes to brotherly love, the, the, the family of God will grow distant. When it comes to unity, it's just something that we say. We really don't know the convictions of other people, and we hardly can understand how to, to empathize with them. You see, these five virtues in verse 8, they bond God's people together. And they're going to sustain a strong witness when persecution comes. When we mentioned this passage, it serves as a bridge, as a link between what Peter has been addressing and what he's going to address. And that's what makes verse 9 particularly interesting. Is Peter in this verse speaking about relationships in the church, or has he shifted gears now and talking about the world? He says here that we're not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but to give a blessing instead. You were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. If this is, refers to interactions in the church, it's kind of deflating. I mean, we just read verse 8. Shouldn't that yield better results? We go from a verse about loving unity now to a verse about vengeance. If it does mean that, we're reminded that no church is perfect. Maybe we get high scores in verse 8 some days, but we're not perfect people either. If Peter refers to our interactions with the world, well, it's almost expected because biblical Christianity really is alien to this world. Rarely is the world going to shower their compliments down upon us or give us their blessing. Instead, evil and insult follow. All I have to say is I don't know which application Peter had in mind, but what he says applies to both. Verse 9 applies to evil and insult in the church or evil and insult outside the church. I think he knows that to return an evil or an insult is quite natural. The mind immediately imagines justice. Do you ever have those conversations in your head? All the things that you would say to that person, praise God, you don't say. That reflex for us can be as common as blinking and breathing. It's that reflex to don the black robe and to climb up behind the judge's bench and to slam down the gavel. We call for justice to bring down a legal verdict upon whatever interpersonal conflict we've had. But that's not the way of the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile and return. And the Lord calls you and I in those moments not to be a judge and not to be a prosecutor, but to be a priest. Give a blessing instead. 
as a sidebar, the Greek word for blessing is actually translated into English as eulogy. In our day, we commonly deliver eulogies at funerals. That makes this command a bit ironic if you're tracking with me. Peter obviously is not advocating for the death of his opponents. What he's doing instead is calling for a very clear blessing, not a call for a funeral upon your assailant. What Peter does is call you and I to speak well of the person, to give them praise. This could look different in different situations. It could be verbally giving that person praise and not returning evil for evil. It could even be interceding for them toward God, where we're praying God's blessing upon them. You see, all of this is a loving unity sustaining our witness. If this passage this morning is landing with you, if you're hearing this and seeing, you know what, I, I have room for growth here. I just want to remind you of some opportunities to connect. I'm here at the church. We go through life cycles every year. The ministries tend to, to slow down the summer and then pick up again in the fall. Men's ministry, women's ministry, senior ministry, children's ministry going on. These are all opportunities for you to come and participate or volunteer. They're all opportunities to flex verse 8. And I would invite you to consider joining up with one of those ministries in the fall. And I'm not doing that because I know you have lots of extra time and you're just looking for a way to spend it. It's because these groups provide you an opportunity to do what the Lord is calling you to in verse 8. To unite with a local church to sympathize, and to love. Well, after Peter's laid out his case in these verses, he then turns to bring Psalm 34 to bear. This is a way for him to to reinforce and give evidence of what he's just said. In verses 10 through 12, King David, excuse me, Psalm 34 is quoted, and in that psalm, King David praises God for his deliverance. In chapter 3, verse 10 of 1 Peter, Peter writes that the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. What about you? Do you desire good days? How do you define a good day? I think there's many answers to that question. A quick internet search yields all kinds of results. Good days happen when you visit Disney World. Good days happen when you eat a certain brand of ice cream. Good days happen when you drink a certain drink, and the list goes on. But how would Peter define good days? Good days for the Christian are going to be good days different from the world. There'll be two different definitions, two different perspectives of a good day. For the Christian, our big vacation is really in the future, not in this life. In chapter 1, verse 4, it's reserved in Tahiti. No, it's reserved in heaven for you. For the Christian, a good day, in chapter 2, verse 9, is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us. And in chapter 2 and 3, good days are days lived out in submission. Good days for the Christian are not going to be problem-free. In chapter 1, verse 6, we learn that we're going to be distressed by various trials. We're told in chapter 2, verse 11, to abstain from fleshly lusts. In chapter 2, verse 21, we're going to suffer according to our calling. But we should say as well that good days are specifically for Christians. 
God gives considerable latitude to the lost to enjoy his creation and to find pleasure in this life. But biblically, a good day is when verses 8 and 9 are lived out. A good day for Peter is arrest, a bloody flogging, a strict order to stop talking about Jesus, and then a profound joy that comes with his release, saying he's worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Talk about a different definition for a good day. A good day is verse 8. The virtues of verse 8 keep speech pure. That's the attachment to Psalm 34. And notice in Psalm 34 here, as it's quoted in 1 Peter 3, there's a Hebrew parallelism. In other words, multiple words are used to describe the same idea. There's a repetition to emphasize or to order ideas. And you've heard this before. What does the Bible say? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's the same idea repeated, but just nuanced in the end to bring some new light to it. Well, the same thing happens in our passage this morning. We're to keep our tongues from speaking evil, that's saying it one way, and our lips from speaking deceit, saying it another. In Peter's mind, that would be a good day. Verse 9 is a good day. Blessing instead of insulting. Verse 11 supports that. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Just hear the hammer strokes in that passage. To turn, to seek, to pursue. There's almost an intentionality, a a conscious devotion to those activities. So what's the point of all of this? What does all of this yield if we step out in faith and obey? Verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is that same theme we saw back in verse 7. That our living impacts our praying. And we mentioned it there. Often we speak of our prayers having an impact on how we live. And and that is true and that is right. But lest we forget that how we live also impacts how we pray. We need to know that how we live affects our prayer lives. And if we're finding this morning a a coolness in our relationship with Christ, or maybe if our prayers seem stagnant, if our prayer life, and again, this isn't the only reason, but it is a reason, if our prayer lives struggle, we should take a step back and consider our lives for a moment. In the context, to help answer that question, verse 12, are we living righteously? Are we living morally upright lives? Are we confessing sin? Are we we repenting of sin? In verse 9, am I returning evil or am am I giving a blessing? Am I constantly returning evil for evil or insult for insult or do I give a blessing instead? In the context, looking back at verse 8, am I practicing a loving unity within the body of Christ? It's true that verse 12 contains a warning, but it also has a wonderful promise. Our Lord seeks to bless us as we turn to him in prayer. And what a wonderful truth that is, the ear of a loving Heavenly Father. One reward of this is a loving unity that sustains our witness. 
There's a book entitled The Screwtape Letters. It's a satire where there's a senior demon who's named Screwtape. That's a series of letters where he's writing to his younger nephew named Wormwood. Now, Wormwood, this younger demon, isn't very good at tempting. He's not particularly good at the art of evil quite yet. But we learn he's been assigned to a man named Patient. And in the second letter, we discover that Patient has converted to Christianity, much to the chagrin of his uncle. Well, at this point, the mission changes. Wormwood is no longer tasked with keeping this Patient away from God, but rather now derailing his faith, causing him to compromise. And Screwtape, through these letters, acts as something of a tutor, a teacher of sorts, trying to impart upon Wormwood his knowledge of evil and his skill and deception. In one letter, we learn that this new Christian has only attended one church ever since conversion. Now, Screwtape thinks that unless this is due to indifference, this is not a good thing. This man needs to be tempted to shop around for other churches, to become a critic of the church, and to put personal preferences at the top of the search. And because Screwtape understands that the enemy, that's what he calls God, he understands that God does certain things among his people when they unite. He writes, quote, being a unity of place and not of likings brings people of different classes and psychology together in the kind of unity the enemy desires. In other words, he says, don't let this Christian plant in a church. Don't let him unite with other believers. Because God puts his glory on display when he takes people of different backgrounds and different proclivities and brings them all together in a place called the church. And he grows them together in unity. He nurtures a loving unity that sustains their witness. And it's a much needed unity, as we will see next time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We are impressed. And maybe sometimes confused at the church. It is such a beautiful thing and an unusual thing. But we are thankful, Father, for your wisdom in ordaining the church and in calling people together and uniting them. It's all from you, for there's no other way to describe it. When left to our own devices, churches fail. We pray for our church today, Father. We pray for unity. We pray for compassion. And we pray for a love, a bond that can be unbroken. And we are thankful for the reprieve from persecution and severe affliction from the world, Lord. But if it does come and it worsens, we pray that we would not divide. We would not fracture and we would not fail. Thank you for every person, Lord, that you have sovereignly placed in this church here. 
I pray, Lord, that you would fill them with a love for others and that you would unite us and bond us together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.